0: If you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation.
1: You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. The trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing.
2: The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. In this episode of the Innovation Engine podcast, we're going to speak to Joffrey Ali, Chief Product Officer of Frank Connect.
1: Joffrey's got a ton of experience in different startups and what he talks about is how to draw upon people's strengths, put them in teams that work together and drive those teams fast with really strong product strategy.
2: Great, let's get into it. Welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Uh, today we are joined by, by Joffrey. Uh, Joffrey, can you introduce yourself real quick for our audience?
0: Hi, Scott and Jess. Good to see you virtually. And uh, I'm Joffrey. I'm the, currently the Chief Product Officer at Trend Connect, And I've been in product management uh, since 1997, which means about 22 years. And I've, I'm sort of a specialist in the sense, this is my eighth company and eight startups. And they've always been in product management and solely in product management. And I've Lived through various stages of scaling a company, you know, all different companies, and hopefully that's what I'll talk to you about and we'll, uh, discuss about my experiences at various companies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah That's perfect. one of the reasons
1: why we wanted yeah. to have you on because we, you and I had talked uh, at other times. I thought, gosh, he has so much good perspective to share with folks. So, what are kind of some of the the surprises or the unexpected challenges you've seen at the at these different companies?
0: Yeah, so I think, well, first of all, every company, every organization, and even within an organization, you have to be ready for the unexpected. I mean, there's so much planning that you can do. But then once you know reality hits, it's different because there are factors within your control and there are factors outside of your control. So the only time you really are surprised... Or when I'm surprised is when really for long periods of time things go according to plan, right? So the only surprise really is that you know there's no surprise for like you know a couple of quarters in a row. Otherwise, I think you have to be ready for surprises, and any planning that you do has to take into consideration different you know uh, situations or scenarios that can happen. So from that point of view, I'd say that the only thing that surprised me was last year, or maybe a couple of years ago, or the last couple of years where you know, things—it wasn't really surprising. What you expected to happen six, nine months down the road was really what was happening in the industry with the product and in our markets, right? So that's very rare, if that makes sense. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, what, what are some of the the tools or principles or 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 um, facets of a team that you look for to manage? Because I, I, you know, we've experienced this as well. It, no, no plan survives a uh, contact with reality. Um, yeah, and yeah. so what, what are some of the things that you look for or try to infuse your teams with to, to deal with that?
0: Yeah, so this is, a, this is a very interesting question. And so the, the single most important attribute that I find that, that is important in a team is what I would consider engagement. Engagement is where teams work well together because you will always have disagreements. You will have different skill sets. You know, people who are really good in certain situations may not, you know, situations may change um, and they may not be... As, you know, uh, they, as great in, in another situation. But if you're always engaged, engagement is a sign of people being motivated to work together towards a common goal. I think you will succeed and you will eventually overcome any of these obstacles because when you're dealing in the software industry or in the technology industry, it's not so much about skills because you'll find that some of the most successful products are not necessarily built by people who have the best technical skills it's a combination of you know, EQ, you know, understanding customer needs, diverse skills, but also teams that work well together. I think that's the most important thing is that if I find that a team is not working well together, that's when I figure out, okay, we need to make changes to how we are operating or what's going on. As long as a team is working well together, I've always had confidence that we can basically Solve any problem or overcome any difficulty. So engagement. So if you focus on one thing, it's engagement within your team. If you find somebody's not engaged, you have to do something about it. So which
2: I, I, that that maps to my experience as well. Uh, high-performing teams perform well together. Um, is is critical to execution and 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 being able to manage through the the unknowns and new information. That makes a lot of sense. Are there are there techniques or things that you you use to get your team engaged. Are there things that, that you do that you found have, have worked?
0: Yeah. So there are some like uh, programmatic things that I do within an organization that I've found. Like, so for instance, uh, you know, to stay engaged, people actually have to know that everyone is contributing. I shouldn't say equally, but they're all contributing to the cause, right? So often if you know somebody's taking too much of the load, you'll find that they will be it's difficult to keep it engaged. So so I've done a couple of things. One of them is obviously distribution of the work. So you have to sort of plan what your team is working on in a way in which you're distributing load and ownership across the team members based on what works for them. So I think that the distribution of work is really important. Otherwise, you sort of create these bottlenecks. The other thing is that we do simple things like everyone in the teams, you know, first thing on Monday morning, they says, these are the things we're going to work on for this week. And they and they share it with everyone else on the team, right? And in me as a leader or a manager, if you see that somebody isn't really clear on what they're going to do for the week, that's already sort of a sign that, okay, you know what, uh, maybe we don't have it very well defined or this person doesn't really know what they're working on or they should be working on. So start the week with, does every person know what they will be doing for that week? And then every day, at the end of every day, we don't actually, sometimes we have a stand-up meeting, but at the end of every day, everyone in the team member writes up, this is what I did today. So if you do it on a continuous basis, where every week everybody's saying, you know, this is what I'm gonna work on in the week, and at the end of every day saying this is what I worked on, you you get a you get a sense of accomplishment as a team, right? So you're sort of validating that. But then there are other things such as you know, you have your weekly meetings and you have your happy hours and all these other team-building exercises. But if you see that you're contributing as a team and making a difference and everybody's contributing and everyone has an ownership, you will get engagement, motivation, and I think teams work well together. And that's probably the one, uh, something that I've always focused on and that we've sort of implemented programmatically at organizations that I've worked at and it's worked out well. So let's
1: talk a little bit about as you're you're making these changes you're identifying what teams are engaged which you no know, how do you how do you kind of manage the pace of change how do you balance between doing too much or too little too fast too slow yeah. how does that play out
0: Yeah so this is this is a really interesting uh, th- this is probably the the crucial part of it I think like sometimes teams uh you know the the teams succeed or fail one based on the, the people that you have, but second of all is like the kind of work that you have the team do. And I think, Jess, we may have talked about it when we met, but I think, like figuring out, you know, what your team is really good at, what their strengths are, and then figuring out the work that you have to do and tailor the work that needs to be done to the strengths of your team automatically leads to motivation. So I think as a leader, being a product leader, one of the, the most important things to do is to basically to figure out. You know, how do I knowing the strengths of your team? I don't think knowing the weaknesses are that important. It's knowing what people are really good at, and then finding out what you can do. In 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 case of product management, it's about achieving product market fit. What you can do to play to the strengths of your team, right? So if you do that on a consistent basis, you'll find teams that overperform. They're 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 well motivated and they can basically beat the competition. It's like, sometimes I, th- I find this is a common fault where people has says, figure out, says you know what, this is the ideal product that I want to build. And then start trying to build that independent, assuming that the people who are going to build it are just like interchangeable pieces, you know, like they're really machines that you can say, you know what, I need two developers here, one developer here, that developer there, and they'll get, basically get it done. It doesn't work that way, right? These are eventually people and like humans, which is why I think sometimes we talk about the fact that developing software is more craft it's like an' it's an it's something that you have to you have to sort of approach as an artisan not as a machine right so you have to take take in the the skills the experiences and you know the interests of the person who's going to work on something and and the interests of the team as well I think that's that's the important thing with change right is that when you whether you're making change or you are sort of you are sort of like adjusting to change it's really about focusing on the people, not on really the work that you will be doing, right? If you w- the people that you have and what can you get them to do. And sometimes you know you have to change the people too, yeah.
2: Well I and I was just about to click into that, but I, I first had to I, I chuckled while you were you were talking about this because I I've become known as the 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 person who talks about crafts and craftsmanship and how how teams come together around the craft and sort of reading Renaissance literature and and uh, medieval guild. Uh, just because, as reference points to to build a culture of craftsmanship. Um, uh, so I, I kind of tickled at that. But I, but it's really that's a really interesting point. That um, so, would you agree with the statement that that talent and the way you leverage talent? I hear this implicit in what you're saying is one of the the strategic advantages that you as a product
0: leader can harness um, in terms of trying to uh, achieve competitive advantage. I, I think absolutely, a hundred percent. I think a hundred percent that is true. And I think. Any organization, I think, can be better than they are. In fact, I look at organizations and say, okay, what makes organization A better than organization B? And it's really the way in which they've harnessed the human resources and the human talent that they have and in functional areas, right? So if you see organizations that do well in certain functional areas, and some organizations do well across multiple areas, they do well because the leaders in that area been able to harness the talent that they have. And the way you harness talent is by treating something as a craft, right? Because people inherently, I think what makes us human is that we are artists by nature. And when we when sometimes we put them in, in roles which where you know you may not be an artist and it, and it happens, right? Is when when people get dissatisfied and they become a cog in a machine and You don't get the same degree of creativity and happiness and everything else, right? So it's kind of like a weird way to think about it. It's like, is that, Mm. and talent also, right? If you think about like, you know, uh, like artists, like Picasso, right? Picasso was a talent if you recognize what art is and what he was trying to do. But if you compare him to a photograph, probably not, right? He was not trying to recreate photographs. So if somebody was like, hey, I'm really good at copying part, you know, picture A into picture B and creating a painting out of it, Picasso would probably not do that well, right? But if you recognize what he was contributing to art, then or Matisse or anyone else, right? And, uh, there's no, there's no difference really at the end of the day, right? You have to figure out. It's about the people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a unique perspective, I think, because I, I think most people think um, that you you have a, a plan, a strategy, a market, a, a view on the market, right? The need, and then you you adjust the entire organization around that. So yeah. let me make that into a question then. Sometimes the team is not optimized for to build the product that you need to build to meet, to meet product market fit. How do you judge that? How do you recognize those signs um, then if you have a kind of a people first or culture first mentality?
0: Yeah, so I'm glad we got to this question really because otherwise we have seen that, hey, I'm, I'm talking about let's get a bunch of people and let's figure out what they can do and what they're really good at. Let's go build that, right? That's not what I was getting to, right? So really at the end of the day, like, all of this starts with, Having a very clear strategy of what you're trying to do. So you have to bring people to your strategy. You can't just take strategy to people, right? So what happens is you have a strategy which says, this is what I need to do, this is why I need to exist. Then you have to break down, says, okay, break down the strategy into okay, what are the things that you need to execute in order to achieve that strategy? So if you're in product management, that strategy really at the end of the day, if you break it down to its core essence is achieving product-market fit. In order to achieve product-market fit, you have to have certain things. And that's when you have to basically evaluate the team that you have and say, you know what, based on the team that I have, would I be able to achieve the product-market fit that I'm trying to achieve and then and thereby achieve the strategy that I have? Mm. And then you would make that assessment up front and you would say, you know what, the team that I have right now I don't I have I believe there's a couple of pieces missing that's like no different from a sports team right is that I think we're we are weak at this spot we're strong in this areas what do we need to do so what you can do at that point is that if, if your strategy right is that you would fill in those gaps but what what's important to know is that you should have the team that you need to have to execute on the strategy so right up to, right off the bat right you have to always be aware of the fact like this is what I'm trying to do. This is the team that I have, and in my team, these are my strengths and weaknesses. And when you have the opportunity, you have to address those weaknesses and figure out where you're strong and build around the strong areas, right? But it always you have to have the right strategy because otherwise you'll execute into nothingness, right? Into irrelevance, right? So yeah, so you the the team you bring the team to what you're trying to achieve rather than the other way around. So what I was talking about it's about why it's human centric is because eventually achieve your strategy, you would need people, right? So you need to have the Mm -hmm. right people. Once you find the right people, to get them to do the right thing is to motivate them and make sure that they're doing the right. At the end, every every leader is a coach in their own way. Mm -hmm. Think the
1: topic of strategy. um, You've talked to me before about how you think that organizations evolve. And as someone who's really good at helping them grow, what does that typical growth, uh, look like, and how does that affect the strategy that you're yep. taking?
0: Yeah. So this another, by the way, another very thoughtful and uh, and, and a really good uh, questions. So one of the things that remember, like the first question we had, you asked me was, um, how do you deal? What is the unexpected thing that you've seen when you you know work in growth or you know high growth environments? And I said that the most un- the what has been unexpected for me. <laughs> is when things don't really change, right? So the, 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 what should I say, the steady state or the natural way is that there is always change in the technology space, both within the organization, driven by your customers, but also what's happening outside with competition and innovation and everything else, right? So you have to always be expecting change. And so you have to bring in people into your an organization upfront who are ready to ex- accept change, which means that you need to bring in people who are flexible. Like I mean, that's, that starts from the top all the way from the top down. Is that flexibility? If you're in the technology space, you know, three years, two years is an eternity, right? To not expect change. So I think that it's you have to be flexible, and if you want to work and you love work in this industry, you have to be, you have to recognize that hey, I'm I I have to be open to change, I have to be flexible, right? So I always try to bring in people who 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 are coming in recognizing that there'll be change. Now, when you have change, what is different is that the pace of change is different, right? So in your earlier stages of a company, the change sometimes could be more rapid, more frequent changes, but they tend to be smaller because they have smaller impact, right? So the momentum is that you can change from hey, I'm serving financial services, or oh, I'm going to do something for healthcare. The product doesn't need to change that much. People need to do small changes in their behavior. Organizers doesn't, doesn't need to change that much. A couple of you know changes here and there, and I'm serving a new vertical. So you can, those changes tend to be more rapid, but they're probably easier. As you get into larger markets where you've established a brand and you're trying to do certain things, then changes to be need sort of changes, I shouldn't say are more difficult, but they take more planning. Right. So the only difference is that as you get further down from where you know where you start, once you have a brand, is that when you're making changes, you have to plan for those changes and there's more orchestration required, right? So you have to be more mindful of the fact that the organization moving in a particular direction, when I do the change, you have to do more planning and be more wary of what impact is it going to have all the way from my customers to the support organization to the product engineering organization, so and so forth, right? So that's all, that's all that I'm mindful for, is that, is that the space at which the change happens and the impact the change is going to have both within the organization and external. But it, I don't recruit specifically for change for any reason. So, so let, let's click into one aspect of, of what you were talking
2: about there um, in terms of um, working through the cultural implications of the changes that are going on around the, the humans who are building these products uh, with you, for you. As, you. as you face growth, you have to think about you're, you're most likely going to be expanding the workforce since you're gonna be bringing new entrants into the company um. Mm-hmm. What are some ways in which you hire for on board and prepare people for the the journey that lies ahead? Are there are there specific actionable things that our audience can take away from 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 how you approach that? You're you're very thoughtful about the changes that you're going to face. So are there are there techniques that you use there that uh that folks can learn
0: from, or that yeah, work for so, you? So so my in my experience, because I've always worked in startup environments at different stages of a startup, but it's it's always been as at a stage where you know the company is growing rapidly you know almost always in double digits sometimes in triple digits and when i say double triple digits this is both in terms of revenues customers but also in employees coming on board which means that i've never been in a phase where we where i've had to hire people who are uncomfortable with rapid growth or you know in in, in or in an environment where they wouldn't be able you know to adjust to changes coming down the down the path, and so, so one of the things I've always done is I've always hired with with the belief, even in phases where I talk about the fact that you know you can have long term growth, but you could have short term impacts where you, there could be periods where you, know, you could have negative growth or you could even be static. But you always have to bring in those people, or I've always hired people who are who look forward to growth, who look who are the who will be the disruptors in the market, yet have the team spirit, right? So sometimes you know you have the disruptors, but they're also, they could be, I shouldn't say prima donnas, but like, you know, like, you know, if my, they could be, they could be thin skin, right? If if my ideas were not accepted, or if, if this is, you know, if what I, if somebody contributes, you know, like, and 60% of the ideas get accepted, but I'm contributing only like 10% of my ideas are getting accepted. So maybe I'm not liked in the team, or I'm not, or my opinion is not valued. That's for me is is a big deal. Like, you can't be like that, right? Is that you could be contributing, and this has happened in my case as well, right? You could be making very little contributions initially, but eventually, the contribution that you do make after a long period of time could be the game changer that makes and redefines the company, right? So, it's always being part of that. It's not that I have to be contributing every day, and if somebody didn't listen to me, or even as a manager, like, hey, this person is not contributing anything, so they're not as useful as somebody every day comes up with a great idea. Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, I always think that people who come up with a great idea every day. like That's great, but that's tactical, and they sh- you should nurture them and help them. But there's some people who are very thoughtful and all, but as and as long as they're on the right track and they're part of the right team, is that they might contribute something really important at a different point in time. So as, lo- as long as the team is doing well, I don't worry about individual contributors. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what i was going to like. That's how I view the team. It's like the whole team succeeds as a team, and therefore, like I've I've been at so many companies. I've, I've never, you know, uh, touched what I should say, you know, we've never had like layoffs and you know team members that I've gotten uh, rid of because of performance issues or whatever it is. Because I've always evaluated the team as a team, and it's always ended up working out well. Now there've been rare cases where team members have chosen that you know this is not the role for me, this is not what I signed up for, and then it becomes clear and they get you know coached out of that role or whatever it is. But eventually, uh, you have to focus less on the individual contributor and focus more on the team. And I know that this seems like, hey, this is not possible when we do individual performance reviews, but it is possible if that's how you bring the people into your team and that's how you operate as an organization yeah
2: there's there's a lot that I love about what what you're talking about that also it feels my own experience and 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 philosophy. Um, you know I often I often will talk about it. it's it's one thing to be the best and team member in your craft. It's another thing to be a great teammate. And so which if these things come in conflict, which one do I want the individuals to to choose? Um, I would choose being a better teammate over being the best craftsperson any day because ultimately how we come together will drive whether or not I build a a product that matters in the marketplace and and has the desired impact. And it sounds like uh, your experience very much uh, and and leadership very much maps to that as
0: well. Yeah. And and there's a practical reason for that as well. Right. Because if somebody's a great craftsman, your value putting is on that individual. If that individual leaves your organization for whatever reason, You've lost all of the value. Your competitive advantage that you had came from that person. You just lost it, right? Whereas, if your competitive advantage is in the team, then the value is in the team providing the value. You can't ever, you can't ever lose that competitive advantage unless you lost the entire team, right? Because, and I, so I think that if you're trying to build strong organizations, that's what you have to do. Like you have to sort of play that that team aspect of it. You have to build teams. It seems harder, but that's just what you have to do. Otherwise, you don't really have a competitive advantage. You have people who are really good and superstars, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so
2: given the richness of your experience and the and the different contexts that you've been in, um, I, I'd have a hard time imagining that you know that your answer would be no to this. But have you found yourself in in situations that are outside your area of expertise and where you had to enter it without any prior knowledge to apply or 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 uh, or yeah. whatnot and how did, you, how did you navigate that? Because I'm sure a lot of people in our audience find, find themselves in those situations uh, for themselves. Uh, what, what insights could you lend them?
0: Yeah, so I've been a number of times and I was thinking about it. Right? So earlier, earlier on in my career, uh, obviously, the one that was easier was I was, I was in product manager. I was a product manager and I was very often asked to step in as a sales consultant or a pre-sales engineer. Uh, you know the product. You know you know the message, and I think that those things were not that difficult because they were sort of natural extensions of what you we were trying to do. But you would step in, and I would do that. Those are not hard. But I think in my last couple of jobs, not in my current role, but in my last previous roles, it just so happened that you know I was I, was, I came in to run product management, and for whatever reason, the CMOs ended up leaving, and the company just decided, hey, can you step in as the chief marketing officer and uh, in one of my roles, I knew actually nothing about marketing. I didn't. All of these things were all buzzwords, but I sort of approached it systematically, as opposed to going and reading a book and figuring out, you know, what account-based marketing means and what the different uh, concepts are. I approached it as I would a product, right? So whether it was the website, whether it was the customers, I approached the same methodology of you know we're trying to achieve product-market fit. The product is the message that we're trying to create. And uh, interestingly enough, both of them, we ended up actually having really good results. In fact, uh, I, I got approached by some company saying, hey, you know, we, would you like to interview for the CMO role? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> CMO That's not anyway. what I do. That's not what I do. But I stepped in for a little, little while. And uh, and of course, like, I guess my job was easier. We had great, you know, uh, great teams in different areas of the company. So... Yeah, so I have stepped up in both small and probably more uh, significant ways, and uh, I was fortunate that it worked out.
2: That's so both. cool. What great, what great validation for uh, for stepping outside your comfort zone and then and then getting that that response.
0: Yeah, and, and then actually at Frank Connect too. Like I, for a while, I was the uh, I took on the acting CTO role as well when our CTO left. Now that was easier. And then, and then later on, someone asked me, Hey, would you rather be in product management or CTO? I'd say I said product management any day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. your home <laughs> yeah so i would say like you know out of the eight companies about five of them i've had to play multiple roles or step into multiple roles as needed for extended periods of time and uh, somehow they all worked out i never thought of it as something that was completely out of my comfort zone i just had to adjust and adapt but you
2: much. leaned on the the experiences and the tool sets that you had developed as a as a product manager and as a product leader yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Hundred percent. Yep,
1: it's great. Someone else was telling me that the other day, and uh, they're saying, "Well, how do you know how to do that?" I'm like, "Well, I don't." I don't too. But I have a, I have a, I have a method that I use for solving problems. I have a method that I use for diving into situations that I, I don't know, and yeah. and that gets me most of the way, where where we need to be. Before we get into the last questions, I'd love to hear your take on how you evolve an organization from being sales driven and engineering driven into becoming a product driven organization.
0: Yeah, so that's that's one of the in fact I came up I uh, I should say I came up with a model but it was a way of thinking of like what is the evolution or path like why do organizations do certain things or emphasize certain things right? So it doesn't happen in all, all organizations but it happens in a lot of organizations that are bootstrapped or where they sort of they want to grow organically. So a sales-driven organization is one where, you know, typically as a founder, you have a great idea, and you're trying to get sell your idea to, you know, different companies. And if somebody buys your idea, you will build a product that that you can sell to anyone, right? So if somebody says, "Hey, I like this," and in that case, what you have is you're building these one-offs, and the chief revenue officer or your your head of sales, which also tends to be your CEO at that point, the founder of the company runs, determines what you need to build, right? And at that stage, you don't really need a product manager. What you really need is a good project manager because you're really managing a complex project. If you have multiple customers and you're a sales driven organization, you're trying to build, you're trying to sort of manage these as as individual projects. You want them to be efficient and you want them you know, to do whatever they are. And I think once you have a couple of successes and you see common themes, the next stage that you get into is what's called as a technology-driven company. A technology-driven is that you're seeing certain trends, and now it's not just about managing the project, but you want to identify, okay, can I build reusable components that if I were to shorten the sales cycle and I could deploy something faster? So, you know, should I run it on the cloud? Should I use you know, certain database technologies? And should I use certain technologies when you know developing the web front end and so on and so forth, in which case you then bring in a chief technology officer. Sometimes organizations also bring in product management at that stage, but the product manager at that point is really to manage a list of features and requirements that really gets validated through the chief technology officer. So you have the CEO, the head of sales saying, you know, I'm building these things, I need to build them faster, I'm going to raise some money. And you have a CTO trying to build a really cool you know, architecture, the marketing guy building a architecture, which is a word for like, you know, things that look good in diagrams. And you're trying to build <laughs> certain products that work and have right the right technology underpinning that. If you explain it to a VC, they they would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're you're on microservices architecture. You're using Angular, but that's still not a product because really you're focusing on you know core technologies. And I think the third, and then if you, once you've grown past that phase where you know you sort of have the right technology, you have established a brand, and now. You want to sort of be recognized as the provider of a certain type of technology that, like, you know, hundreds or thousands of customers can use the same product through configuration. And that's when you become sort of like a product led company it's in the sense you have to make now serious decisions on what do I need to build, how do I need to build it, which markets am I going to serve, and so on and so forth, right? So you're engaging with your customers, you're engaging with your market. And you're gonna you're gonna drive a long term roadmap of this is who we are going to be as a company, and that's where you need product management. That's that's when you become a product led company in the sense that now your sales organization sells the product that you make, and the product that you make defines who you are as a company, right? So for the longest time, I guess it's even now, like when people think of the search engine Google search. They think of Google as the company. When you think of, and in the enterprise market, when you think of SAP's ERP system, you think of SAP the company. Or when you think of Salesforce the product, you think of Salesforce the company. Mm -hmm. When you think of Splunk the product, you think or the platform, you think of Splunk the company. But when you think of Accenture the company, you just think of a bunch of projects that they do for different customers, right? So, product-led companies, you 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 become a product-led company is when the product that you're selling and the way you're developing the product is synonymous with the brand of the company, right? So that's the last stage. And I think at that, at that stage, product management is really important. And product management then is no longer a project management manager, and a product manager is no longer sort of as a chief technology officer determining what gets in the roadmap. The platform and improving the infrastructure and plumbing is just a small part of the overall roadmap and product strategy that you're focusing on. You're really focusing on product market at that stage. yeah, Yeah.
1: Thank you. Uh, That was the one I definitely wanted to make sure we had recorded uh, and shared, because I really liked that perspective. And I think that test of the product-led company is the best I've heard, because I've heard a lot of people trying to adopt that product-led language, but it feels... More trendy than substantive, and I think the way that you defined it really helps people understand what you're shooting, shooting for and why. Why would it matter to be product led, except that you think you're cooler?
0: Yeah, and and uh, and I think that some big companies that have fallen into that trap was like IBM back in the day. Like IBM, you know, they were a product company, but then they, for whatever reason, they regressed. To being a technology-driven company, because you know they had a lot of great products, like you know all lowest notes, and these platforms and everything else. But they started focusing on architecture, so they would come in and show these diagrams of all these different platform products. They never actually worked together. There was no unified customer experience across all of this suite of things that they had, and uh, they just pretended that that's what it was. And so they did some sales for a while that I think it worked for them, uh, but eventually the customer, you know. You can't you can't fool all the people all the time, uh, saw through that. And once they saw through that, it became very hard for them to then become a product-led company. So if you on the other hand, flip side, if you look at Salesforce, they've stayed very focused on being a product-led company. Like the product is what they work on. It stands for certain attributes and things, and then that's mm-hmm. what they deliver. AWS is the same way. Everything works in AWS, it works, either works or it doesn't work, right? So it's not a architecture. It's definitely an architecture. It's a platform that works together. Right? So that's again, it's a it's it's core infrastructure technology, but it's very much a product, and they're very much a product led company because it's very easy for you to understand it, buy it, and then deploy it.
2: And one of the things that you said there is 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 helps clarify the connection between what we believe, what we value, right? And and so the the products that AWS puts out or any of the companies that you, you were talking about reflect those values, even if the, yeah. the manifestations, the features, the individual things may differ, but there's a unity to it that is that is expressed in the product, yeah. which is really neat.
0: Yes. Scott, that's a great way of putting it, right? Is that the, it, there is a value that's in there. Like there has to be a unified experience. There has to be something that the company stands for. And and the And I don't know if that comes from your strategy or whether it comes from your guiding principles, but you need to have both. You need to have strategies, you need to have guiding principles, and then your product needs to sort of adhere to those. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we like uh, to ask a couple of standard questions that we ask every guest. I'm going to change it up because you actually answered one of our normal questions, which is, what do you look for for a team that tells you if it's healthy or in trouble? You talked about engagement. Yeah. Um, so let's start with the other standard question that I'm going to throw in a alternative. What piece of technology, analog software, hardware that is not your phone, can you not live without?
0: You know, that that answer is like really easy and and difficult at the same time. So if I pick the obvious, there's just so many. Like you know, when you're working at home, like if I didn't have the internet, I would say, you know what? we probably wouldn't be able to work from home and productivity would be probably like 90% lower than it is right now, right? So yeah. if I leave all of those things out, like, you know, access to the internet, the car that you'd have to drive on a regular basis, uh, you know, uh, it, like the internet, like the Amazon or these webs. so if I leave all those things out, right? so if I pick on things that were like, like you know, people consider to be optional technologies that I found, that I find now to have actually changed my behavior in a positive way that I would have not expected. If I think that I would have to say it was my Apple Watch, which I call it, right? So now I've gotten so addicted to it because when you're staying at home, it's like, you have to be mindful of, hey, are you standing up? Are you exercising? Are you going outdoors? And mm-hmm. are you getting like, and so it's actually made me sort of mindful of things that I would not have been mindful for. Am I taking the 10,000 steps that I need to take uh, and so and so forth, right? it's my heart beating at the right rate, right? So, uh it's a piece of technology that now, like when I wake up, even if i whatever time I wake up, the first thing I try to do is like, hey, do I have my watch on? Because otherwise, I won't track how many hours I've stood up, right? And I take it off right at the end of the day because I was like, hey, it's gonna miss certain number of minutes of exercise that I may be doing because I took it off too early, right? So, yeah, so it's like a piece of technology that I can't live without now, and uh so it's yes, yeah, it's the one that I didn't think I'd be. So enamored with, and then the other one that I mentioned is slightly low tech, is my espresso espresso machine, right? So I don't think that's low tech at all. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah it you know, the espresso
0: uh, machine is pretty high tech. I, I agree, but <laughs> the espresso machine you know, wake up in the morning and you're like, turn on the machine, and you know, the grind, the whole, the grinding noise that happens, the smell of the of the beans being ground, and fresh espresso coming out of that machine, and perfect froth. It's beautiful, right? I mean, uh, I would
2: have drank normal coffee. coffee. A beautiful, beautiful metaphor for craftsmanship and uh, wow. the, the human experience and delight. And yeah, right? Like the grinding of the beans is, is
0: a feature, not not an, un, not an unfortunate and, and, thing. and I And I think that you put in the whole smell and everything else in there. But, you know, they didn't have to do that. I would have just drank a normal, you know, instant coffee and now that existed. But the fact that it exists, I just use it and that... It's like a pleasurable 30 seconds that I have to wait. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I put those couple of things in there. Uh, that's an example of where, you know, like these are not like, you know, must have essential technologies, but they definitely make life more enjoyable. And I think that's, you know, that's beautiful.
1: So, um, I should probably mention we are recording this during the time of COVID 19 and everybody is at home. Um, yeah. And so, that's a new set of patterns, which I think is a great way to send our other, one of our other standard crutches, which is, what is something your team has taught you recently?
0: Yeah, that's you know that's an excellent uh, excellent question excellent question because I'm the because of the way we interact like we're always learning uh, new things from each other all the time and one of the things that, uh, that I've learned from my team recently was so we have we brought a couple of new members into our team and you know during COVID 19 we're actually looking at usage. Of our product, for instance, like, you know, how are customers actually using our product and how is their usage changed? Now, one of the things you may not be aware of is like Friend Connect, our customers are franchises. We send to franchisees, right? And the franchise brands. Uh, probably no other industry is as deeply impacted by uh, this, uh, by COVID 19 from an economic perspective as the franchise industry, because it's all brick and mortar and it's about. You know, getting people in through the door and so on and so forth, right? It's about creating communities, whether it's coffee shops, whether it's the gym, it's all of that, right? So they're affected more than anybody else. So for us, we're actually monitoring, just by monitoring our application, because we have the platform that is used by 800 of like 3,000 largest franchises in the U.S., by far the most widely deployed across all of the... So we, it's, it's, there's a lot of very interesting data. So one of our product uh, managers, actually one of the team's members of my team, yeah, she actually looked at the data, she analyzed it, and she figured out, was like, okay, what is the positive that we can get out of it? Like, so once this thing is over, because everything is like, you know, looks like, you know, it's tough, you know, they're losing business, they're not getting royalties. But, you know, what would the recovery look like? So she took the data and she wrote a nice little blog post on, you know, for the franchise industry, and she posted it in one of their forums on, you know, like what is the reopening gonna look like and what they should focus on? Like, what are the like, like that people will come back in, like what should they focus on in terms of customer experience. So I thought it was kind of interesting because she didn't have one, she didn't have to do it. Two was that she had that connection between the use of our product and the customers that we had, the empathy that she had. Mm-hmm. Right. And then to sort of like translated right so I was like, that's something new, like we often think of us like, you know, like we're like you know out here trying to build products and there's this faceless customers out there, but they're not, right? They also have their lives and our products sort of serves into that. So that was a very touching thing because it happened like in just a couple of days and like, and, I, and I'm in these meetings and you can always see that everybody's going to figure out, okay, what can we do for our customers? Like we've never had a discussion where people say, you know, what can we do to make sure that we retain a customer so that we can make more money out of this? Like, it's like, what can we do to make our customers so that their lives are slightly better? Right. And so she wrote this and she published it. It was very well written. And I didn't even know it until somebody pointed out and said, hey, did you know that so a team member has written this in this franchising blog post. So that was something I learned is that, you know, that that people have empathy. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's about your customers and, and good teams always focus on the customer and what the customer is going through and, you know, what we can do to help. them.
1: That is a fantastic answer. We will go find that blog post and put it in the show notes so yeah. that folks can find it um, because that. That's a yeah. great story at this time. And so many companies are, are doing the same thing as trying to figure out how to lean in, how to help customers, how to support people. Um, so uh, it's after you say that there is no steady state and then it's those kind of people who I think rise in a moment where something crazy like a pandemic hits. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate all the insights and that I know it's a really busy time for everybody that you took time out for us. We really appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Scott. And I, I know 3Pillar is like a huge partner of ours that you guys have been with us even now uh, through Thick and Thin. So this is, this is you know, it definitely has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Scott. Take
2: Thank care. you. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at 3PillarGlobal.com or visit us at 3pillarglobal.com.